Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense, episode 100. So, yes, it's a special episode, and I have a special guest who I've brought on to this episode because I knew this would be another one for especially my dog nerds out there, those who get really into the curiosity of science and and how do our dogs learn and how do they think. And she has her own podcast and YouTube channel and social media. And if you ever heard of Canine Decoded, then you've heard of my guest, Dr. Melanie Uda. Melanie, thank you for coming on to the podcast and talking with me for this episode. Yay, thank you for having me. I had no idea I'm the hundredth person I would have brought, I don't know, a little cake or something to celebrate. <laughs> we could have definitely had uh, a little celebration, but I didn't want to add any more, um, I don't know, pomp and circumstance to the <laughs> situation and just kind of surprise you with that you're yeah. the hundredth guest on the oh, show. I feel so honored. I don't know if I deserve that. Okay, I'll, I'll try my best to keep it super interesting. <laughs> oh, you'll do just fine. Just in our conversations before we even started, it was it's already been fun. So. Well, I guess the first thing I'll do is just, you know, tell us a little bit about you. There's going to be mm-hmm. obviously a number of my listeners and viewers who may not have heard of Canine Decoded or heard of you. And mm-hmm. if you haven't, you should. So I'll let them go. You start with about you. Okay. Well, I'll try to keep it crisp and short because, um, you know, there have been many, many sideways and paths that I've gone throughout my career. But probably the most important thing is, I come from research, pure research, basic research, nothing dog related at the beginning. So back then when I started my master's and then PhD, I had no idea I'm going to do be doing anything with dogs. Um, but life happens mostly because as I was doing research and it started in Germany, so I'm from Germany, in Hamburg, I was at the Tropical Medicine um, Institute, so all about, you know, immunology diseases that affect the brain and whatnot. Um, And then I moved to New York City because I always wanted to live in New York City. So I worked at Columbia University. There, um, more research on the gut-brain axis. I worked with Hopkins um, University on on mental disorder patients. So more and more brain, brain, brain. Mm -hmm. um, Until I took a break of five weeks, I think it was, in 2016, so a while back. Um, and I went to Thailand to volunteer there um, at a tuberculosis clinic. And two things happened there. So for one, what I thought I'm going to do there was not what I ended up doing. So I thought I'm going to bring the latest science and I'm going to help them optimize their diagnostics and show them all the things we know behind the wall in New York City <laughs> in this lab. Um they were not very interested in it, or let's say they didn't need it at all. So I just ended up cleaning data in an Excel sheet for them. Not that I was sad about it. It was just mm-hmm. eye-opening that that's what they needed. Um, and then at the same time, I encountered a lot of village dogs and free-roaming dogs that were probably very suspicious of who I was. I've never been there before. Um, I was, you know, it's like just such a classic picture. Just picture me in my little cabin um, and then hopping on my little bike and 
cycling through that little village and there were all these dogs and I cycled through and, you know, naive as I was, it was just like happy to see dogs. You know, I studied mm -hmm. biology. I love animals. Um, and they charged, they barked, they ran after me. And the first day they was like, oh, I'm going to get even to work. Um, I can pass them, but more importantly, I don't understand them. Mm -hmm. How am I going to handle this? And why am I not understanding it? And this classic, I'm a dog person or animal person, right? So that was eye-opening. So these two things kind of coming together is like, what am I doing, right? And like, I'm doing all this research. I've been dedicated my 12, last 12 years to it. And yet in real life, maybe not real life as in living in Thailand, but these animals, I don't really know how to read them, how to handle them. Um, and... I didn't like that. I am, I'm, I did not like that at all. So I was like, this has to stop. So I literally quit my academia um, life. I really thought I'm going to be, you know, the whole assistant professor, associate professor, tenure track at Columbia University or whatnot. Um, and I totally quit that. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It took me a couple of weeks. I didn't quit this on the spot, but <laughs> I came to the conclusion. This is not what I want to do. Um, I was, um, financing my new path for a little bit in, in corporate world while building up my my dog training business as an education business. I don't know what, I, what it is exactly, but um, <laughs> what I ended up doing is um, getting my own dog, helping other people with their dogs, observing dogs, shadowing other trainers, learning more about what trainers do, different fields, um, while connecting it what I had studied. So I was like, okay, there has to be some use of these last 12 years. And for me, a lot of things clicked as I was going through the internet, falling down this rabbit hole. Why does something work? Why does something not work? Um, and as I was communicating and more, I realized more people are also interested in that. And then six years later, here I am on your podcast talking <laughs> about detection and neuroscience and training. What would you, what was your uh, – because you, you also went to Stanford University too and did parts of – what was your life there like? No, I didn't. I I didn't go there in person. It was okay. a, a virtual um, program gotcha. that I attended, so I didn't okay. have to move for it. Um, but it was with focus on anxiety because I was really interested. Given that uh, so many dogs suffer from anxiety, to learn more about the disorder of anxiety, um, just from these experts from Stanford. Um, unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, it was mainly human based like anxiety in humans. Mm -hmm. But I talked to to the to that lady who's a professor, the head of neuroscience there, um, a lot about how animal studies have been conducted and going from there to see how this applies to dogs um, as like, you know, in relation to medication and rehab. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. So your background leads me to the first question, basically, a lot of times, and I'll, I'll, part, I'll put this into detection, first, is dealing with arousal and motivation. Um, and a lot of times, if you're a professional dog handler or you're doing something with dogs, mostly in the paid realm, there's types of dogs that are selected because of their motivation, because of that willingness and drive to do the thing or to play with a thing that later turns into reward for odor. I want to cover how arousal or that motivation that drive or drive as people always call it um interfere with learning could you give us a little bit of information about motivation arousal and learning and what's happening in the brain 
when these things are occurring? That's a good question. And all three of it, motivation, arousal, and learning, all three are like really complex. So we have to untangle that a little bit, I guess. Sure. Um, so let's talk about arousal, right? Arousal is such a beautiful thing, not especially in the in the pet dog world, is not as appreciated as it should be. Um, and I think the theme of our conversation today will be a balance probably of all these things, right? So all of these things um, that you mentioned are good at a certain level. They're not as good when there's nothing of it and there's, they're not as good as when there's too much of it. Right? And we all know, especially in the sports world, dogs that have a little bit too much arousal and motivation, mm-hmm. they even can't focus anymore, right? They're just out of it. Um, but also a sleepy dog is not really motivated to learn either. So the three things you really need for learning is um, attention, arousal, and motivation. If you have these three at the right concentration, so it's like this inverted U shape, right? Um, then you're good. Then you have this memory machine in front of you and you can, if you know how to handle pretty much do everything. Now, how how arousal really works in terms of the hormones or the neurochemistry is when we think about arousal, probably every one of us thinks about adrenaline. That's mm-hmm. one of the biggest drivers. There are others, but adrenaline is really big. And epinephrine, which is adrenaline, but what's happening in the brain basically has a lot of effects on, on perception, learning, focus. Um, for one, they're like effects directly in the brain where memory is being stored and built. So it kind of gives it a boost, but also adrenaline activates everything else, um, including making glucose available for energy and glucose is being transported in the brain. So there are a lot of things that are happening just to optimize the brain for taking in more information and not only taking it in, but also storing it potentially uh, for long term. Now, if it gets too much, then it's out of balance. And then the the body and the brain has probably more so... um, the focus on getting it back into balance and actually learning. And if it's too little, then for the brain is like, well, it doesn't seem that important. Why would I have to activate and even memorize it? So that's where, where it's important to, to get your dog activated and then the emotion attached to it too. Mm-hmm. The, you're bringing up a point that makes me think of, a lot of the typical training methodologies when we're starting detection, and again, going with dogs that are going to be toy reward, Mm -hmm. they will do things like tease the dog with a toy or bounce the toy or whip it around or whatever, and then they will go hide it, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so the dog gets really excited to go do, to get that item. And now knowing what I've gone through in life with training dogs, that level of excitement many times can be prohibitive of that skill of searching efficiently and effectively. What is how would you kind of describe that from your point of view, pros and cons or things to consider? And I know this is gonna be dog dependent, but if you're a trainer, and you're kind of following the protocols that you've done. You, we both share a friend. I'm actually going to see him in a week, uh, Dr. Stuart Hilliard down at Lackland. And the government dogs, whether it be military working dogs or TSA, because they all share the same space down there, um, that style 
of approach of kind of whipping the dog up in the sense of excitement to go do the thing. What is happening kind of in the brain at that point? So it's the, when we're talking about, right, if they see that they see what they're working for. So it's mm-hmm. very goal-oriented behavior. So whenever something is goal-oriented other than the activation is dopamine, right? The motivation to do a specific task in order to get something. Um, now, if we can probably, you know, I, I do really feel like these working dogs, especially in, I don't know, military working dogs or wherever they really <laughs> have these higher roles of motivated dogs, they are just addicts to me in terms of what happens in the brain, right? This is not a dog that I would want to deal with on a day-to-day basis because they're just addicts out of their out of their mind, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's as if they see this object of desire, the anticipation to get it, and especially if it's being removed again, right? Just mm-hmm. it's like shooting a missile and the anticipation cranks up dopamine so high so incredibly high that is just like as if as if it's a drug for them now because it's so high i think other functions suffer which is the thoughtfulness of the search the the effectiveness of don't just go and and kind of like you can you can scan an entire field and be super fast or you can be just a tiny little bit slower but more efficient in terms of how much energy you actually waste on something right um and i think um if the dopamine is so high meaning the anticipation of getting is so high that the dog is willing to exert more energy be less efficient just to keep moving for it um i think makes it a little bit well, less efficient, like you said, potentially, right? It's probably looking different for each and every dog. Um, but the thoughtfulness of it goes out the window. So all these other functions is like, okay, actually think about what you're doing, not just doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really, really important for learning too, right? You got to have the focus. And even though it seems very focused because they're so motivated, um, I think it is so narrow-minded in that moment that nothing else really sticks in that because the only goal is to get that Kong or whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> and it's and I'll put a video in right here when people are watching this. Um, example last night I recorded it. So my I have a Labrador and he is extremely, extremely motivated for his toy. And it puts his mind in such a frenzy because he wants it so bad that he will, a couple things happen. One, he comes into the search area, as we call it, he comes in all hot. He's ready to go. He's, and then when I release him to search, he is searching what I would call in a fairly hectic manner. He, he slows down after a minute or two and gets a little bit better. But the example that I'm going to share here is he's searching this room. It's not even that big of a room. He doesn't find the odor at all because he's just kind of frantically, you know, I want the thing so bad. He doesn't follow the odor like he should. And then I run my second dog, who's my working Cocker Spaniel, who is motivated but not over the top like Gamble is, the Labrador. And when I run my Spaniel in the room, he finds one of the odors without really too much issue. The second odor, 
definitely took, you know, we had to kind of open the drawer a little bit because he just, it just wasn't. And, and the other premise I have to add to this was the odor had been in place in the room for about six hours. And that's not that complicated, but the, the younger dog, the Spaniel is less experienced, but performed better because he wasn't losing his mind. The <laughs> Labrador who's more experienced didn't find either because of to, in my point of view was his brain couldn't get out of the way of letting him search efficiently and then go, Oh, there's a thing I'm looking for. So, I mean, based on what I gave you without even seeing it, how would you kind of describe neurologically what's happening? You kind of did in a sense of, I'm guessing, is it the dopamine that is so high in him that he can't think straight or is it a multitude of things happening? There's always a multitude of things happening. Um, one one danger of like dopamine peaking or spiking up that much um and then basically not getting it in that moment it tanks for a moment so the dopamine goes up it's like oh i'm gonna get it then it goes out of my view or then know like i have to search for it and the motivation or the 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 action that follows is driven by um avoiding the kind of frustration that the dog feels in the moment. And the frustration comes in because the dopamine goes up and goes down, and then it goes up again as the dog basically gets closer and closer or consumes or plays with the toy, right? But the higher it is up, the more it falls down and potentially mm. so far down below baseline that that is kind of painful, painful as in frustration. Not physical pain, but pain pathways are being activated. The frustration kicks in and a dog that is operating off of, I just need to get this frustration go away, like no matter what it takes, I'm just need to this to stop versus a dog that has maybe a little bit of frustration, but can still deal with this as in like, I know what I'm doing very thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's really a big difference. Right. And I think it, again, it's probably a lot of genetics, but personality driven too you know, how how addicted a dog can become to something. Um, and unfortunately, that came to a point with it and, right, have to, they have to learn to overcome their frustration first before they become a lot more functional again, right? And if they can't learn to come through that, and sometimes it's really bringing their focus back, you know, I don't know, um, without knowing exactly how you would do that in that moment, but bringing them some obedience in. I don't know how much obedience you actually use, mm -hmm. but something to bring back, channel the focus a little bit more um, on something else helps them sometimes overcome their frustration. It's funny you say that because so this is just through my experience of dealing with him and, and my dogs in the past that were very similar in that high level of arousal and motivation. Um, so what I had learned over time was, okay, when I get them out of the car or get them out of here, we went to my house. So we come out of the house and go across the parking lot to the school building. What I would, what I've learned to do is I give them the toy to, in, in my hopes to satiate that I want it so bad. I can't even go potty because I want to just go get the thing. Mm -hmm. So I do that and it helps with gamble the Labrador decently but what was unique last night that i saw was a game of toy as we're walking across the parking lot this is a dog who goes crazy for the toy i mean he he will play with it nonstop. he gets it he's walking across a parking lot he drops it and wants in the building like he already knows getting in the building is going to be even more fun and that was a unique thing what would you 
how would you describe why that occurred in the sense of his anticipation i'm assuming because he he because this is what we're going to get into next which was cues that build the anticipation before mm-hmm. you even get there there's people sometimes including myself don't even notice that sometimes simply getting out of the car or a lot of cops i don't want to go too far off track here but when you put your gun belt on or whatever the dog goes "Ooh, i know what's going to happen now and they are super excited super motivated and we haven't even done anything yet we could be hours away from doing the thing but those cues do things to their brain and there's positive and negative aspects but back to the ballpark what would you say was it just that the anticipation is so much to the building that it even overrides his desire for the toy knowing that he's going to get it again in the building anyway i'm just curious what's your point of view on just what i'm describing i know that's as little as i can give you but yeah that's no it's an interesting use case you know i think we we um often know that the 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 activity that leads to the reward itself, you know, that's why you pick certain dogs for your for detection, right? And not just every dog off the street will be able to do that because the activity itself is rewarding and getting to it, right? That itself has to be part of the process, or else it's um it's not the same, just giving the toy, right? Yeah. And we have that, we experience this all the time. We just don't think about it. A lot for a lot of us, the time, the two, three weeks right before Christmas is what really matters. Putting out the decoration, right? And 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 baking and going to the Christmas market and having blue wine in Germany, you know, all these things, they all fall together. And that's the that's part. If we were to just skip to Christmas, it wouldn't be the same, right? It would just not be the same. Because we're building up the anticipation. You can't just just give, don't just give me the gift or the yeah. present under the tree. I want it. I want the whole process in front of it, and um, and then sometimes the 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 reward itself. I mean, they're still motivated for the reward, but again, and sometimes that's not even all about the reward. Christmas, you know, yeah. <laughs> a lot of times it's just a disaster because everyone gets into a fight and then we're eating too much, right? It's really not about it. It's really just about the, the building up to it. Same Thanksgiving within one day, right? You smell the good food, you're anticipating it, and then there's dinner, and then after it, everything drops, and it's like, okay, back to normal. So, and it's very contextual. Everything is so contextual. And these little cues that the dog, the more you repeat the same patterns in terms of memory building, right? It kind of just, one cue is enough to activate certain memories of I understand what's going to happen. It's a procedural memory. I know what's going to happen in that sense. Spatial memory kicks in, right? I see the building. I know how to navigate. So, and then the the more pieces fall together, getting in the car, you bring out the toy, then you go over to the building, all these pieces fall together that it's like literally for the dogs, like, oh, I know what's going on. Let's just, you know, get through it quickly so I can actually go to the task that is internally rewarding, eventually leading to the ultimate reward of the toy. And it's funny, the analogy you give, I give a probably more crude one. I give one uh, where I say, okay, this is why men and women view the dating world very differently. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know where this is getting. (laughs) Yes, exactly. For the male side of the equation, 
It's they, they put in the work, you know, they will call you every day. They're sending text messages. They're, they're giving flowers They're doing all these things because they want that end result. And then as soon as they get that end result, they're gone. You know, you hear the women, especially online dating. Oh, they ghosted me. They did this Mm -hmm. because once the anticipation was gone, then all of a sudden putting in the work went away. And then on the, I would, you know, I can't speak obviously on the female side of it, but on the female side, there's all this, oh, look, they're doing this, they're doing this, they're doing this. And those cues then have the woman excited for what if, but the two versions, the male and the female version are viewing the potential payoff for each one is different. One's more the emotional, one's more the physical, but both start off with similar cues and then different things happen. But the anticipation and the hope, as Dr. Sapolsky talks about, is where a lot of the you you will put in work in order to get the payoff, right. and um, that's you know we see that in dogs, and they and I, I wanted to ask also about because I've heard different dog trainers talk about that are a little bit more science oriented have said. There hasn't been a ton of research about dopamine, particularly to dogs. Has there been? Has there not been? Are we not looking the right places? What's the thing with dopamine and dogs as far as research goes? What do we know? What we don't know? Or what do we are we making lots of assumptions? Yeah, it's tough. Anything that is brain related is tough to research on live animals if it requires them to to move or do certain tasks, right? Um, in particular, because it's never black and white, it's never just one brain area. It's never just one hormone, right? It's kind of hard to to um, to really analyze this. And in rodents, you know, that's like their model. It's just so much easier nowadays to do all this. So I haven't really seen any really good study on dogs and dopamine. And honestly, like you would have to, I don't know what would have to happen. Definitely would have to be either an MRI, but better even... Um, manipulate certain brain areas, which, you know, ethically you're not allowed to anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough. So I, but I also like to say in that context, cause I get that a lot. It's like, okay, can you give me the studies on dogs for whatever you say? Right. Mm-hmm. And often I have to say I can, because there isn't such thing, but, and we talked about this right before, like, yes, there's always a little bit of your assuming you're making assumptions, but you can make smart assumptions, um, knowing that they are still assumptions, but understanding that, okay, it has been shown in other species across evolution, if you will, in rodents and monkeys and humans and other mammals and different contexts, and especially with the uh, genetic manipulation in rodents, um, that we can assume, knowing also the anatomy of the brain, there is some conservation happening, so we can make some some assumptions and draw some conclusions mm-hmm. by extrapolation, especially if we actually can confirm this with what we see in dogs. Not just throwing out um, this might happen be happening in dogs, but actually align this with what trainers see in dogs, not just in one dog and different types of dogs and so on. Um, I feel comfortable making certain assumptions or saying this is very very likely happening, but again, always knowing that. Sure. We don't know for sure. The I want to give you an uh, example. This this is something that happens with detection dogs a lot. Hmm. So we're teaching the dog the odor, and under certain circumstances, um, let's say the trained final response is a sit position. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, as they're progressing through training, under certain contexts, this will get into memory, which I'll get to in a minute, um, the dog does the task well. It goes to odor, does the sit, gets reward. But all of a sudden, when the context changes just a little bit, the dog smells the stimulus, the target odor, but then is basically going, oh my gosh, I found the thing. I know what happens next. I'm going to get rewarded. And they don't do the sit. They lock up. They freeze. And then handlers wait the dog out, hoping that the dog will go into a sit. The dog Mm -hmm. sits there for 10 seconds or whatever it is and goes, as Dr. Nathan Hall would say, the vending machine's broken. Nothing's (laughs) happening. And then moves on because it was used to, I found the odor, odor led to reward. Mm -hmm. They don't always necessarily make the connection that sit is there, but when there's a context that they're familiar with, the arousal levels or the anticipation, I guess, is more manageable for them. But all of a sudden, when a context or a variable changes, Mm -hmm. that excitement to get the thing inhibits or stops the movement because they're so their muscles tense up talk about is that what's happening what's happening there when you go from the one thing and they're performing the the physical behavior better but then all of a sudden when a context changes the sit the behavior that we train goes away they're still telling your odors there but they do so by freezing because they just like as Michael would say, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. They're almost shaking that they found it or they're, they just can't process well because of that high motivation and anticipation for reward. I'll give it to you from there. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for this, but um, I would say because it is some form of not being able to generalize the final behavior to new environments, you know, if I think about it, um, there's something to say about a, a sit is just not internally rewarding. We train them to be rewarding, right? So this is mm-hmm. easy to f- be thrown out <laughs> for a dog yeah. if something else becomes like overshadows almost like that kind of connection. And it's easy for um, for that to happen in new environments because novelty is such a big um, input for a dog well, for us too, really, for all of us, the brain kind of reevaluates everything a little bit differently. Um, and it's not to be assumed that just because we've done the sit and that kind of combination somewhere else so many times, that is it's easy for the dog to go into a sit that is a learned behavior that is not internally reinforcing in a new environment. And if that new environment is a little more activating just because it's a new environment. Um, a lot of times we fall more, we, we dogs, the dogs fall more into, um, I want to say reactive behavior as in something that is just false. It feels easier to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wouldn't say that they forget to sit. It's more like they don't make, it's like you said, they don't make the connection that this is also part of the complex behavior because mm-hmm. for them, it's a new environment. It's put in a different context, in a different bucket. So mm-hmm. they would have to kind of basically be reminded of it. It probably wouldn't take long because that's the beauty of memory, right? Eventually it clicks. Um, but because, again, I think the novelty itself shoots up the excitement or the anticipation or just generally the emotional load 
that something that is not as internally rewarding is just being thrown out for a moment. And it's, you know, it's funny because Dr. Hare said, he asked when we were first doing stuff together, why did we want the dogs to sit? Because he would notice just by watching the dogs that the natural um, physical response in the dog in this context, and it matches other contexts, when they come across something stimulating, they freeze. And like he was saying, isn't that more authentic and something that's easier to read and that you could trust would happen? He Because his thing was, which we'll get to coming up, like he was saying, memory, if I sit, I get reward. And some dogs with higher memory go, oh, I'll just offer this behavior, especially when stressed, as he brought up, that they'll do this in order to get the thing. And that was really kind of like enlightening to me. And for me and a lot of other dog teams now that that are out there doing detection work, the freeze indication has become more popular um, because of, in my opinion, the honesty out of it. It doesn't mean that you're never going to have a dog who will throw. My dog clearly does. My, my dog Gamble definitely does. Um, he had learned that, oh, what you really want me to do is freeze. And then I used him for students when I was doing training. And when he realized new people were working the leash, he could feel you know, he could fool them in the sense of, oh, I'll sniff this, freeze up, and they might throw the toy for me. And he's a high goal tracking dog. So it basically, you're like, so go ahead, give me your reaction to that. <laughs> oh my God, this is hilarious. I love that. <laughs> you know, and then, yeah, again, I think he is, is the same, the same with like the novelty, right? And I, I don't know, again, this is something we don't know, like how much of like cheekiness is behind that behavior. Like I, like what I always say is like, ultimately the dog has, or the brain itself, you know, is really two, two main functions, two big categories, maintaining all your body functions to stay alive mm-hmm. and then avoid what's not good for you and seek pleasure, right? Now, seeking pleasure, that's processed by itself and involves learning, right? Mm-hmm. And if something doesn't work, that's part of learning too. And if if your dog can't fool you because you're the handler and just like this understanding is there, right? Just through repetition and whatnot, um, it's a different story than when there's... And of course, they're testing it out, right? Why wouldn't they? It's about getting what you like. And it's not about performing. Dogs don't care if they're a plus or a minus performers, right? It's like, I just want what I want. And um, it's the same when you bring new dogs into a home and you rehome a dog to a different family. They're testing out everything, evaluate everything from scratch and finding what's the easiest, what's the fastest way in that sense. And yeah, that's, I would say, again, if the connection is freezing equals toy, Right. Well, let me do this faster with that person. So I get my toy. Right. Um, very fascinating, though. It's very- and it's it is unique because as he learned it with other people besides me, after he'd gotten away with it more often, he even takes it to the next level, which is I'm going to do it when there's a, a a small hole or a open drawer or something where he can stick his nose into. He's more apt to do it. Or if there's something that's stinky or strong smelling in the environment and he hasn't found his thing yet, he will say, well, I can't find the thing. I'll pick this. And because of him, I now 
I didn't do it with him, but my newer dog, Ammo, the Spaniel, I definitely did. I introduced zero, like no odor as a concept much earlier in the training mm-hmm. than I did with my other dogs in the past. And that has definitely had an effect. And now with all the dogs that we've trained in the past couple years, that is something that we introduce much sooner than we ever did. We do it now in discrimination phase, which is what we refer to as step two. So step one is teaching the odor. A step zero is our developmental stage. We teach things and step, you know, here's, here's how to hunt. Here's how to play. Here's how to engage. Here's a marker. That's zero. One is teaching the odor. Two is discriminating to the odor. And we teach in two that odor may not be present and your lack of response, no response is also correct and can get reinforcement. And again, as uh, Dr. Simon Gabois said, um, doing that creates the dog to understand, to, to be less likely to give an indication when they're highly excited for something because also the lack of something, if they've clear the area. There's nothing there. They don't have to, I guess, lack of a better term, pick something. Force because, force the, 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 yeah, the detection. Or something. Yes. Yeah. So I've, like I said, so just between my own two dogs in the span of five years, just me making that change, I can for sure say in my experience and with many other dogs that we've trained this way, that ability to understand that zero is you know, possible and zero is something that can get levels of reinforcement has dramatically reduced false indications to the point where my little spaniel will hardly ever. He's, I always joke around, he's my most honest dog because <laughs> he's like, yeah, nothing's here. What do you want to go do? You know? Um, it, and you brought in something a minute ago that I, you know, you and I have never talked about this. I have, I put it in my notes all the time. When the dog smells something novel in the environment they pay attention to it very strongly. And because as detection dog handlers and trainers, whenever we do training, we go into an environment, whether it be a room, car, outdoors, and we place our training odor out there in, in any of those environments. But when we do that, we've introduced something that doesn't belong there. It's novel. It's not. It's immediately going to be reacting to the environment in a different way than all the things that have been sitting there have. And then within 30 minutes, give or take, we deploy a dog into that space. The dogs very quickly acknowledge the odor and we feel great about it. We're like, look, our dogs are awesome. They're finding the thing. But as many dog handlers have learned, let's, you know, when I ask handlers, how come you don't share this space that you're going to search? Let's say it's a drug dog. Why not put explosives out in the same space with bomb dogs when they run? Technically, the drug dog should ignore the bombs and then vice versa. We don't do that hardly ever because everybody, without saying it, I'll say it out loud, are afraid the dog might respond to the other thing because they've experienced it versus going, you know what? I'm going to show my dog early on that the novelty does not mean this Mm -hmm. is important. It's the particular odor that's important. And, but because we're short on time, or we don't introduce things until way later in the learning process that they go, or we show it's under a context. So like I was saying in the discrimination phase, discrimination is like a typical lineup. You have, you know, five like things, each thing holds something different. The dog goes up and down and goes, okay, yep, I'm, I'm finding, um, 
this or acknowledging this trained odor. And the example I'll give was what I kind of described a second ago. I had an, a handler contact me after a canine competition, and that's what happened. They didn't have enough space. They put the bombs and the drugs in the same general area, and a vast majority of each discipline responded to the other's odors. And it freaked out the drug dog handlers because they were like, oh, I now have to proof my dog off of explosives. And I'm like, no, you don't. Your dog has learned, though. I call it the canine cheat code. The thing that doesn't belong there, Mm -hmm. it potentially has human scent and or rubber gloves right there. The next thing is what you've packaged it in. Is it in a canvas bag? Is it in a plastic bag? And in both disciplines, they may use similar types of external containers. Then the next thing is you've concealed it. You've put it behind a drawer, behind a door. So that's it's placement in itself contextually matches what training looks like. Then the next thing is the minute the first dog runs on this area, subsequent dogs will also now add dog scent on top of that. And then finally, the fifth thing is a target odor. So the dog goes, okay, doesn't belong, concealed, smell it, has a human scent to it, has dog scent to it, and then happens to be odor. This is, there's a lot to unpack there, I'm sure, from your end. But what I try to get the handlers to do is say, okay, to combat this, I'm going to also put other things in the environment that don't belong, that are non-target odor. I can increase that difficulty by also putting something there that's maybe what we call distracting or proofing. So if it's proofing, it's related to the odor, but it's not the odor. And if it's distracting, then it's something like dog urine, dog food, toy, thing that's going to naturally get their attention. And then they start teaching the dog, hey, pay attention only to this thing. But when we don't do that enough, you brought in memory, there's memory into that whole cheat code. And if four out of the five things are present, dogs who generalize really well, which are the dogs that we pick, go, oh, okay, I'll pick this. Mm-hmm. And then the handlers are like, oh, what's wrong with my dog? But when you do the exact same game in the odor lineup, they don't do that so much because we've taken away significant parts of the contextual learning. So. Mm-hmm. How would you unpack what I just described and what's kind of happening there with dogs? Because there's memory going on, clearly, and then there's generalizations that they're trying to do inference to solve the problem. And this is where I come in with cognition. A lot of times I say dogs with high inference are really good at trying to generalize things. Dogs with high memory are using these other strategies, but they both use these strategies to to come to the same conclusion. Yeah, I think ah, this is so cool, you know, because... This is, by the way, why I initially got into immunology. And I, <laughs> I mentioned that to, to Michael the other day. It's like, they're like things we can't see. They kill us. I need to understand it. And it's the same yeah. with odor, right? You just can't see it. And there's, you have these, these dogs with these superpowers that make, well, make sense from their perspective out, mm-hmm. out of this world, right? And we're trying to <laughs> catch up with this. Um, anyway, so yeah, memory. So, you know, we often think of memory as like something we... Um, distinct in terms of my dog knows how to sit. So sit, the behavior, just putting the butt on the floor, that's the memory, right? But like we said before, it's so contextual. There's so many things that everything the dog um, experiences in that moment, any sensory input, but also the learning from what has the dog experienced before come together. And basically, um, consolidation of memories like I take all these things in 
and I store it as a as a big picture. It's like a book, right? And each page kind of like has its own meaning. And that book is like memory. It's very complex. And again, if there are a few chapters kind of show up again, well, then I then the whole book kind of makes sense. I'm going to grab that book out of the bookshelf, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be present the entire pages, right? It's really, like you said, things come together. Um, but because, and I think that the sensitivity to, okay, just one cue or two contextual cues are present will make this whole memory show up. Um, I think there are individual um, differences because again, for some of us, we ha some people have um, such good memory and I'm like, it takes a lot for me to memorize a lot of details, right? So it would be very interesting for me in terms of research just to know what, what makes the dog difference in terms of memorizing it. But also the emotions attached to it also matter a lot. Mm. So if you have a dog that is not even just medium motivated, but just, you know, has potentially really strong bond to the humans or the handler is extremely social, right? And smells human footsteps or prints. Um, I think emotions also play a role of like, oh, you know, I'm so close. This must be it, right? Yeah. Um, goes in the, in the other direction too, right? Staying more like skeptical if the emotion is maybe not as pleasant or whatever, um, plus the motivation attached to it. What, so describe, you said it earlier, I think you said spatial memory and mm -hmm. contextual. Give us a breakdown of what those are and, and how they're defined. So spatial memory is really just, you know, you can tell that um, if a dog is being put in the same room for training or whatever, um, multiple times, they kind of do very similar routes first, right? Or like just move in a similar way. And, you know, in terms of experiments with, with rodents, it's always these the, a maze that is set up with various mm -hmm. um, exits and entries and, and whatnot. And um, sometimes even though for, for rodents going by their detection too, they might not necessarily initially go by detection. They're just memorized where to go and how to go. So it's just the spatial memory kicking in before they start actually smelling something or detecting something. And then the procedural is just like how to, right? How do I get there? Um, including like keeping, the, it sounds so simple, but keeping your nose on the ground versus maybe also checking the air or whatnot, right? These kind of things mm -hmm. all kick in. Um, the skill that is attached to it. Do you basically everything checking up that 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 needs to be memorized too how to move your body to get up or down right it sounds so yeah. simple but it is part of the process to learn it all these things come together and then you see this complex behavior what is because i've heard dr hare mentioned it more than a few times and i use the term without probably totally understanding but calls it working memory mm -hmm. how would you describe that so working memory it's you know, when you see, um, and you see this a lot in, in, with pet pet dog owners, and it's cute, it, it doesn't mean anything bad, um, but they start training a new trick, and they say, my dog is so smart, it just this, the moment I started to show my dog how to do it, they, mem they, they knew what to do. That's working memory. Next day, they probably have, an hour later, they probably have forgotten it. Um, for us, you know, if you... <laughs> if you had to mem like you see a code um that you the security code on your laptop that you have to punch in somewhere right for letters mm -hmm. five five numbers or whatnot and then you just go to a different window or tap and you can type it in that's your working memory that's just like i just memories but 
a few minutes later, you probably forgot. Yeah. So that's kind of just literally what you're working on in the moment. Your brain kind of helps you to to proceed, basically. And when the dog is, um, you know, you put your hand up and the dog sits, never has heard the sit command before and, and seems to actually getting it, that's working memory in the moment. You still got to have to have the repetitions over many, many days. So would that fit the analogy I shared the other day in my social media where I said I encourage people to move their trash can to a different spot in the house and to see how long it takes them to not go to the old spot first before they go to where you put it new and to remember each time you teach a dog a new thing that it's going to default to something from before before it tries something new. Is that underworking memory or is that different than that? Yeah, so the the going always to the same spot, even though the trash can is not there anymore, more that would be the long term memory, right? You kind of the cues of like, I want to go there, kick in, and this is where I'm, right? And then the working memory is you're activating. First of all, you're activating um, old memory almost, right? If you're like, oh, now the trash can is somewhere else, it's not there anymore. So you're still activating your long term memory, but it's still in that moment, it's open to change. And in order to be open to change, you kind of have to give new information in in that moment. Yes, you're leveraging working memory, but then it still goes back to the, the long-term memory is still hasn't really fully changed, but it will change. The more you activate it, you add new information and in, the more it will change again. Right. And you use whatever you do in the moment as working memory, right. Um, in order to, change the long-term memory potentially. So there is a, a, there's a couple of different directions I want to go with this right now, but I'll go with this first. Um, tell us about explicit or and episodic, implicit and episodic memories. Oh, that's, that's a good one. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I would, um, I don't want to, I want to say I'm, I'm an expert in, in this kind of stuff. Um, you probably know more about it than and, and I do because I do I don't really use these terms. Okay. Um, I only go in in terms of the what really matters for for what I, when I work with dogs is everything that we talked about. So you tell me what do you understand so about episodic? The analogy I give is mm-hmm. I say episodic memory is something I could ask you what you had for breakfast this morning and you can tell me much right away. The implicit memory is. You may not have ridden a bicycle, let's say in a months and years or whatever, but I put it in front of you and you can get on there and you can do it. It's a skill that you can fall back on. You can execute it pretty well, even though you haven't used it in a long time. Mm -hmm. So that's how I describe the two when I'm doing my cognition class. How does that sound? Yeah. Yeah. So I would probably, that sounds about right. Um, implicit is kind of like you can describe, you know, that you, you know how to, you know, that you know it <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and episodic. Yeah. It's like, is it something really distinct? Um, that is like what you had for dinner last night or, or even like, I don't know, well, probably not what you had last week, but if it was something where you went last week for something. Sure. Yeah. If it had a connection to it. You can remember. Yes, it right. Yeah. Yeah. The, and it's funny. So when I do my cognitive tests, and these are the battery tests that I, I got from Dr. Hare, and in, in, again, like I was telling you before we started, a lot of people ha- assume the cognition tests I share are strictly related to detection or working dogs, and that's for mm-hmm. all dogs. Um, in there, as it, the parts that become more specific is more related to the score. 
Like I'm looking, if I'm doing a working dog, I like scores in these percentile ranges. If it's an assistant dog, I want it in these percentile ranges. And then pet dogs, it's more or less gee whiz information. Um, and then Brian gets into even further details of like personality types and so forth with cognitive ability with the, his, the website dognition.com. Um, but what I do bring back specifically to detection is odor and how the the odor, let's say I have, I and you probably again saw the thing I put on TikTok recently was your odor smells like, and it was how you store it, what you touch it with frequently, what's it made out of, what's the current odor profile mixture of that chemical, and all of these things, and your dog gets really good with that. It remembers, it knows your odors, it knows the kind of case you store it in, the glass jar, the entire thing. And then, but your assumption is my dog knows this particular odorant. Mm-hmm. Now, I go train with somebody else who has the exact or has the odorant that I do. I can't say the word exact, but it has the same chemical odorant that I do. But when I run my dog on that one, the dog does not acknowledge it nearly the same as it did with mine. Mm-hmm. And what I add to that is dogs with higher memory seem to struggle the most based on history and reinforcement for let's say mine. So if I've trained on mine for months and months, and then I finally get my hands on somebody else's, my dog barely acknowledges it. If I introduce a, a, let's say I'm only a couple weeks into my training with my odor, and then I bring somebody else's odor into it, the dogs kind of, again, even with high memory are a little bit like "Mm, pretty close, but not mine. They may, but they at least acknowledge it in some way mm-hmm. how would you describe that as memory and what's kind of happening or from our point of view as a handler yeah this is this is also this i guess this is why i never got into detection all that much it's like so many things to think about it kind of gives oh, me a yeah. headache almost um so the more repetitions or experiences a dog has with a certain in a certain context right the more often um goes from working working memory to being con- con- consolidated into long eventually long term memory then being reactivated oh yeah still the same going back in long term memory then being reactivated oh yeah still the same going back into a long term memory so that as you then probably would say higher memory is like really solid memory it's like that's it and that's what i'm detecting basically mm-hmm. and then changing that up in those moments when something changes, it's not so much of... So basically before it's so solid, there's room for change. There's room for adding elements to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like little, like another chapter in the book, right? This is also part of it. This is also part of it. But if you kind of miss that part and repetition has just become like so solid, the dog is now, okay, that's it. And it's not going to change easily, Right then you're going to have a hard time because then adding something new is not so much of this is just part of it. Then it's just something completely new almost or new enough for the dog to like, mm, I don't know about that and and reevaluating it. So you would recommend based on obviously what we're talking about, it's important to introduce new variables related to the work that the detection dogs are going to do sooner than later because of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Sooner than later, 
but also not too soon, right? Because then sure. it won't make sense at all either. So there's this, just like how you how you would do this with the um, with any kind of obedience, even, right? So unless you start doing this then in different environments where the dog is like, oh, this is I'm adding new things, is like this also means sit or focused here or whatever, loose leash walking. Also, when there's a distraction or whatnot, um, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. Okay, new no, the memory came up. It's being active, you know, I'm learning and it's being put into a long-term memory. And okay, we, we got the whole picture, right? And you add elements. But if you do it too early, then it becomes confusing. It's like, what are we doing now? Like, what is this now? Right? There has to be almost like a foundation of association has a certain uh, framework of association has to be there to add elements to it, new elements. Mm-hmm. If it's too late, then it's hard. And if it's too early, then it becomes confusing. The so let's get into that study that was out years ago, uh, where they took the two groups of dogs, trained one group of dogs on a task once a day, and then the other group of dogs were trained once a week. And mm-hmm. at the end, the dogs trained once a week outperformed the dogs that were trained once a day. Mm-hmm. There is, and then I'll let you explain it, but it's kind of the way I was reading it as the dog learns that task. The the neur the neurons create that pathway. Then I guess, and I'm my probably might say this wrong, but the myelin or whatever that wraps around that kind of mm-hmm. helps solidify that. Mm-hmm. Is there's when you when you do it so frequently, each time there's another new path or another thing that's happening. Um, describe what what that research was and why what why that happened that way, uh, where the dogs that were trained less frequently outperformed ones that were trained more frequently because obviously our mindset is we should train the thing over every day multiple times a day and i explain to people why i don't do that but i i don't even give you that information yet until i hear why what you're about the research why that's why that happened and so forth so i don't know about this research i will have to read, read up on it but exactly they did but because my first like first, I think, okay, once a day is not that much, right? Mm-hmm. So like, why would there be once a week something? And I think, um, but what did they, what did they exactly train? Them so to it was a, a set of obedience. It was like a, a chain mm-hmm. of obedient behaviors. Um, and I'm forgetting, I know it includes a sit down and some other things. And what, as you know, because we went to the cognition part of it, what we had learned, and again, I'm probably bastardizing some of it because it's been a while since I've read it. Um, but in a nutshell, what it basically said was with more repetitions, increased frequency of error. And okay. the dog isn't just remembering the things that you wanted to, to do. It also remembers the things that happened that weren't correct. So even though you are giving reinforcement for the desired things, the dog still takes away the things it didn't that weren't um, desired. And so there's an experiment done, done on me, similar but different. It was just to prove a point from a human perspective. So I was shown a photo, like a little 8 by 10 photo, and it was, it was like a landscape scene with a boat and water and whatever. And I was shown it get to look at it for, I think it was like a minute or two minutes and then didn't see it again for hours later. Then let's just say, so the example I give, I was shown in the morning and I was shown around lunch and I was shown at the end of the day. So I saw it only three times. The next day 
I was shown a tiny little thumbnail of an image and I was asked, is this the image I saw yesterday? And very quickly I was like, yep, that's definitely the image. Okay, good. Shows the image to me again. And then I'm like, okay, but two hours later, I'm shown a different image now. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, it goes to lunchtime. I'm shown the correct image again, or the image I've seen previously. Then an hour later, I'm shown a different image. Mm-hmm. And then a couple hours later, another different image. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm shown the image again that I've seen now for two days. Mm-hmm. The next morning I come in, I'm shown a thumbnail again. And is this the image? I struggled. I was like, well, I don't know. And and the point being was my brain took in, even though I'm seeing the same the one many times, but the minute that I was shown these other things, my brain still remembered them. Mm-hmm. And there mm-hmm. becomes the disconnect of being able to solidify a clear memory of what I was supposed to, or what in this case, the experimenter wanted me to remember. Okay. I want to remember this one. So talk about that. That's okay. that's that's kind of where they took they overlap. They said, so see when you are learning. And and the joke was, see, we ended on a good note. You ended that day, you you we showed you the thing that we wanted you to see, and you still struggled. So mm-hmm. that was kind of giving me a human contextual understanding of even though I ended on a good note, even though I had more repetitions of the right thing. When there was other things brought into play, my memory will still take those in. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. That's 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 a good example, and I, I kind of like I like what is going. And I definitely have to read up on this study because I have so many. I would have so many questions. So for <laughs> one, is like you can have you can have one experience and remember it forever, right? And you don't need any repetitions for that. And then other things you will never remember because they're just not as important, right? And I think where I'm going here is one of the questions would be, okay, just by the handling of these two groups, these dogs, it becomes like a chore. We're going out for training again, we're going out for training again, we're going out for training again, versus once a week, it's like, wow, we're doing training, right? It becomes emotionally loaded. And therefore, already setting up memory much better than than just doing something mm. every single day, right? So that's one thing that I would say um, can contribute to that. Then, obviously, you know, when you've been shown that image and you the first time you saw that little thumbnail and you guessed it right, you know, what if you would have gotten ten thousand dollars for that? Yeah, I think you probably would have more likely concentrated the next time and still remembered, even though you might have given, maybe we should test that next time, you might have given uh, the wrong pictures. Or on top of that, what if you would also gotten, I don't know, an electrical shock if you kind of, you know. It's funny you're saying those things because they brought that up. They said, of course, if we added pressure or reinforcement to this, there's going to be potential outcomes that can change. Yeah. And and even though this would have been controlled pressure or reinforcement, right? What if the unconscious or that we don't even aware of reinforcement that the dog would have experienced in those kind of settings, right? Yeah. So maybe we'll come to the different dogs. But anyways, um, but I think ultimately what we still can say is, you know, this kind of overload. So there's focus and there's just so much focus you can pay attention to. And if you're overloaded with details that you can't, put together, right? Because you haven't gotten the right repetition enough, then it's very wobbly 
it's so wobbly that you kind of get confused at the end of the day. And that's yeah. just kind of like that happens to us all the time. Um, if you get distracted, right, you're, you're looking at something you're learning, but then every now and then you look at your phone. It's kind of like you're not what you're supposed to learn and you don't remember. You read the same thing again and again and again, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the scattering of the focus. And dogs obviously um, may or may not be distracted easier, probably not so much because we get distracted so easily, but focus is really what matters. And if there's um, even introducing of other things in the context of what the dog was focused on in the moment, right? Focus goes in different direction and that makes the memory not as clear equals the behavior is not as clear. So Focus is incredibly important. And if your dog focus, like you can have a high roused dog that is scatterbrained and focus on everything and will not learn anything, right? <laughs> Never. Mm -hmm. Or it will take so much longer, right? But if you have a dog that is really sharp, right, and has the right motivation and the right um, activation, then it's a memory machine. You don't need a lot of repetitions and you can probably do it once and do it again three, four, five days later and then dog will remember it, right? So... I think there are a lot of elements that go to, into it and introducing errors by itself is a whole topic about this too, right? You could almost see this as an error to introduce something the dog is not supposed to focus on mm -hmm. and that sets it off too. So yeah, these things together kind of determine how fast the learning actually happens. Yeah. And I have to, a lot of times warn uh, students when they see that their dog is high memory, they have to make sure they change context more frequently because if they keep showing that context a lot, but the environment the dog later has to work in is going to be very complex, the dog has resilience to the change. Like, mm -hmm. oh, not, this, is, this is not the game I played before. Then you see some pretty strong um, de degradation in performance because um, the dog performs really well in the things that it remembered, and it likes that game. And all of a sudden, when you change it, the handler has the expectation, well, my dog knows it. And then all of a sudden, you change that variable and then that high memory dog is like, nope. It, but if we show them those changes a little bit more frequently earlier on, they're, I use the word, they're more mentally flexible to those changes. Um, but the doubt, the hard part is you, you, if you don't know your dog's memory and you do the thing numerous times and you feel really confident and you keep doing it because you like the outcome, the dog's doing well, it gets it, then all of a sudden, you change something and then it falls apart yeah. and then they go looking for any number of reasons why it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the it's, it, and it's funny. You also mentioned the focus part of it. So in the cognition testing, there is a, the first battery test is, is called the working memory test and it's three times 20 seconds. So the dog, there's three buckets in front. You show the dog to see what bucket you put underneath, and then you put the occluder, the, which is just a barrier, in front. So the dog can no longer see the buckets for the duration of time. So you do that three times, 20 seconds, and of course, of course each time, each repetition, it moves to a different bucket. So it's either right, middle, or left. It's randomized which one it is. You put the barrier out. You wait 20 seconds. You pull it back. And a lot of dogs get that no problem. They're like, yep, mm -hmm. got it. It's pretty easy. What's amazing, though, is the dogs who don't do so well at 20 seconds, no distraction, just the way I described it. But then you do the exact same test again, but distraction. So the handler has to you know, prohibit the view of the dog even looking at the occluder anymore. 
So now you kind of spin the dog around or you stand in front of it and you sing to it too. You sing and talk to it and do whatever uh-huh. during the 20 seconds or 40 seconds. And what's always amazing is dogs who do amazing at 40 seconds distracted, but tanked 20 seconds with no distraction. So that's a phenomenon that always, you know, gets me going like, I can't believe that happens. How does that happen? The way, the best way, I think it was either Dr. Emily Bray um, or somebody said it to me basically like, it's kind of like the kid who's in class, kind of very bored when there's not, when it's 20 seconds, no distraction, they're they're looking around at other things and they've Mm -hmm. already forgotten what the task was. But when you stimulate them, they become more focused. And when they're more, then they're like trying to get around you or they want to see the thing they remember better and they and it's you get a result or a better result out of that does that like what am i describing basically i have no idea <laughs> i find that i i never i never thought about this that you know kind of like it's the distraction is really the removal from what the dog was focusing on first uh-huh. right it's yep. like a mini break uh-huh and then going back to the initial one it's retrieving kind of like what was the focus you know because sometimes focus is important but you do have only so much energy right and then kind of getting a break and coming back to it you know i mean from human perspective um that can help right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh the distraction itself the nature of the distraction is probably important you said like you know just not looking at it talking to it whatever what if what if it was like a similar picture on the other end with like buckets and whatnot, but just not different color or whatnot, uh-huh, kind of too similar, uh-huh. but still a distraction, you know, would they still perform well? Would they then yeah. kind of get hung up on it? I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't know what's actually happening. I think is the closest they gave me was it's like the kid, like I said, the kid in school who's looking out the window distracted. But when you challenge that kid with something, they can focus better. So then that leads me to the question I have for you is, do dogs have ADHD? <laughs> it's like, uh, I get asked this a lot. Um, and also like, can we compare it with, with autism, for example? Sure. Um, and my answer usually is, I think it's, um, I think ADHD or aut- autism are kind of um, conditions that we are familiar with and we find similarities in the behavior that we see in humans suffering from these or living with these conditions and how we sometimes see dogs. Now, do we know whether or not the same functions or dysfunctions in the brain are happening? We probably don't know. And I, it's going to be really hard to, to con- confirm that. But I think what we can say is, and this is something that comes from ADHD research too, right, is, for example, physical exercise increase in dopamine helps focus better for kids suffering from ADHD that they sometimes don't even need necessarily medication. Mm -hmm. And that is something we see one-on-one in dogs too, right? If we give them an outlet in terms of movement and motivate them for this, they can focus better, kind of drags it behind or with it, right? It's like now the Mm -hmm. focus is there. So you can say, okay, like dogs that can focus that well, right? Do, are they activated again? Can we give them an outlet and can we can we help them be motivated for the task more so that the focus follows? And that's very really similar with, with um, kids in particular suffering from ADHD and yeah. then even with autism, right? So the sensitivity, the um, what kind of sensory inputs they process, what kind of sensory inputs they they add value to, 
um, is something that we sometimes as human dogs, but I think oftentimes it's they pay attention to things that we didn't even think they're going to pay attention to. And they see changes in things that are very, very hyper-specific and detail-oriented that we, um, as someone who is not uh, suffering from, or does not, is not on the spectrum, does not have autism in any way, you know, for me is like, I, I, I'm oblivious to a lot of things. Like I don't, I don't care so much if something changed in my environment, unless I feel threatened or something really great happens. Mm-hmm. But, um, and my, my dog, my, my shepherd, he's like that too. He, he sees something and would almost run against the pole because he just is so like not focused, detail oriented. My male, totally different. There could mm-hmm. be a little tiny stone in a different position at night and we walk out and she will investigate it. First thing, she goes right mm-hmm. there. Right. And that is something that is you know, unseen and unless you like there's a scene in, in people suffering from, from autism. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the political correct way of saying it is because I always say suffering, but they're not really suffering. Sure. So yeah. you know, just to say <laughs> autism. Sure. Um but they they have detail they see details that and, and memorize them and, and um kind of retrieve them that I think can be similar to to some dogs, right? Absolutely. No, it's true because like I said, I you know Two things happen with many times with working dogs. Dogs know you're getting to that location before you're even there. They they've memorized how the bumps in the road are, mm-hmm. and if they in that place is a very fun, pleasurable place, it's like I'm super excited. We're at Disney World. I can't, you know. And they've after a few times they've memorized their road to Disney World, mm-hmm. um, and then as we talked about already, then all of a sudden the dopamine is spiking. Ooh, we're going to be there. I can't wait to do the thing. And then all of a sudden you're like, no, I need you to be under control. I need you to do this. And the dog's like, I'm in Disney world. How can you control me right now? <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> so the, and to segue into something else I wanted to bring up with you was variable reinforcement. Mm-hmm. How, what's its relevance to dogs learning in neuroscience and what what's important why should we use it what's the benefit for the learning and for the brain of the dog yeah so for for verbal reinforcement you know in terms of what's happening neurochemically is you know the dog knows if i perform this it's expecting a reward so again anticipation leads to increase of dopamine now if that reward doesn't happen even though the dog knows exactly this is the behavior and I know I did what was expected and the reward doesn't come, reality is very different than the expectation or the anticipation. And how different it is, how big the gap is, is very important um, to understand because that kind of determines the behavior. Um, But ideally what happens is there is a gap and it is big enough for the dog to be not demotivated, but even more so motivated to try harder the next time. And, and you mean gap by time of when they get the reinforcer, is that correct? No, no, gap between reality and expectation. Gotcha. So the okay. gap between the anticipation, how high the, the anticipation was versus how much the dog feels punished in that sense or how much the dog feels uh, frustrated or disappointed to give a human emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will motivate a dog, a certain dog, to try harder the next time. It's like, I know I did that. And that gap is kind of the dopamine falling. And again, whenever there is this discrepancy between anticipation and the dopamine falls again, 
that's what motivates us because that's where also the pain pathways kind of lead to this kind of feel of I'm a little frustrated right now. I should be given a trade or a reward. I'll do it again. Because again, motivation is still goal oriented, right? It's still very driven towards a certain thing. It's not random. So that that's what intermittent reinforcement gets you, right? So an additional boost in the motivation if the dog is a very aware and conscious, basic conscious, well, it's a whole different word, but um, <laughs> thoughtful of the of the activity, knows what is being expected, has done a set of repetitions, expects a reward, doesn't get a reward, feels motivated to do it again a little bit differently. And it's similar to almost like this arrow that that there isn't that the dog feels like something is not right. It's like something's weird. Without the dog necessarily knowing what is wrong or what led to it, there will be some additional boost to it. Sometimes um, the dog will be um, working a little harder for it, right? Mm -hmm. So stays motivated, actually doesn't drop. Um, and at the same time, because of this, the dog also kind of uh, gets away a little bit from the shortcut to just getting to the reward. And sometimes it brings back a little bit more the awareness of the behavior itself. So then how important and what does the use of a condition reinforcer do for that process. So for those that are listening or watching, condition reinforcer meaning marker, for those that use the word term marker, how does that help hurt or whatever for variable reward or intermittent reward schedules? Well, that's that's definitely a question for Michael <laughs> and you really. <laughs> um, because um, for me, I haven't really experimented much with this, right? We know that if you condition the, the reinforcer the yes marker, for example, any kind of marker, right? It kind of um, just elicits almost the same response yeah. as you would directly give that reward. Um, now, do you also emit that marker, not just the reward, but also the marker, right? I haven't really figured out yet how in certain situations um, it's good to also not say yes. In other situations, mm -hmm. you say yes, but don't give a reward, um, maybe you can give me your thoughts on this. Yeah, no. And so there was my experience where I've seen it work well, but I had learned when I had waited too long to introduce that it was much harder. And this is what a lot of people go through. They go, well, I want to use variable reward, but as soon as my dog finds the thing, they don't want to leave it. And I try to get them to move on to go search some more. They're very persistent about staying at the first one. Like, Hey, I found it. Why aren't you rewarding me? And that, that's the response that uh, Simo said was, well, that comes from you built so much time and expectation there, they're resilient to it. But if you show them earlier and you very incrementally bring in that variable reinforcement schedule from 100% to 98 to 95 to 93, the dog becomes much more, okay, yep, got it, which is how you can get animals to do things repetitively over and over again without getting reinforcement. They just hear the ding and they keep going. And because they know it will come. Species, obviously, are going to be slightly different in, in how often you need to give them the, the reinforcer. Um, some can go thousands of repetitions before they get a reinforcer. Other ones, three to four before you need to give a reinforcer if you want that behavior to continue. What I can say, obviously, in detection dogs is that when my dog finds something in that step two stage, I will give him that signal. So for me, it's either a free or a whistle tone and they know they're correct. They come to me and I say, okay, and I move them down the line a little bit further, go find another one. The next one isn't too far to find. So it's pretty quickly. 
that then helps build that expectation of hope and matches what Simo said, which was that's that incremental process getting it shorter, but then I can build it out longer. And when you build it out longer, you also go back to shorter again, just so again, you're keeping that hope going that I could get it. I may not, but it's not the end of a world if I don't get it. I'm happy to keep searching to find another one. And there's, I have to also preface sometimes with, with handlers that this is going to be detection dog type. You know, where, what, what type of detection dog do you have? And is this conducive for what you do? So mm-hmm. if you're expected to find potentially numerous things on one search, you really want to have a good variable schedule of reinforcement. Mm-hmm. If you are one and done, then a variable reinforcement schedule for you may not be as important. It's good for learning, and it goes back to that part we keep talking about, the hope of when a dog has hope or uh, any of us have hope, we're, we'll put in work. You know, We'll do the thing, and we're happy to do it because we know or we expect the payoff to occur. Mm-hmm. The signal part just helps that even further. And then the, you, I, you, the analogy I give all the time, because I used to live in Las Vegas, was I can put in $250 in the machine, and I'm down, and I'm down. But all of a sudden I hear ding, 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 and I get a $50 coupon. And I'm like, yes, I got 50 bucks. I spent 250 to win 50 bucks. But that signal pulled out of me, like you were talking about the dopamine, the excitement. That's obviously a spike, but but I'm so excited when I heard the ding, 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 I got my thing. I really lost. I put in way more than I got out of it, but I felt happy. I felt that. (laughs) Yeah. So- that's where I, I try to share with them the if if you do the process right, the dog can hear the signal, be very happy, and then move them right along to another one. They'll put in more work because even though like like Simone said, he's like there's the expectation. This is really powerful. Then there's the consuming part when they get it. That's okay, but that's a different chemical and it's not as exciting. And they're really they're, they're ready to do it again. So there's expectation and consumption, and these are very different aspects. Mm-hmm. And I think something something that is also important to know for dopamine, right, is dopamine habituates, desensitizes to, to the same thing, do the same thing over and over and over and over. It loses this, this motivation or the anticipation for it, right? So if always the same thing happens in the same way all the time, maybe in the same environment, you always get the reward as soon as, right? Eventually that becomes... There's naturally the dopamine, the learning happens like, okay, well, okay, this is just part of it, of daily life or whenever we do this, but we need to have the capacity to detect if something really good happens, right? And we can't just waste all that good dopamine for something that happens all the time anyways. And kind of introducing some changes in that sense and that now you didn't get rewarded now you get rewarded again now you two times in a row you don't get rewarded right keeps the expectation high or the anticipation high because again it's it always comes down to the contrast and the novelty of things right and even not getting rewarded every single time is part of like something is something new something something is not haven't hadn't happened before right and that keeps the focus on the task it keeps the behavior alive and motivated for all these things and that intermittent reinforcement is basically in real life all the time what gets us the behaviors we don't want and what are so persistent, right? So we might as well use it then for things that we do want. <laughs> How genetic is memory? Like, is there breed types that we can 
we can keep breeding. Like let's just say I, I I'll pick Labrador because let's just say the hunting world that does the retrieve games where they have to remember where the falls are at. And that's an important thing to be able to have a dog do is memory something that is a quality we could breed for. We could breed dogs that are just really high in memory, or is that still a kind of a specific to the individual type thing? That's a good question. Big brains help. <laughs> so you probably want to want to have uh, a dog with a big brain or big head. Um, I think what I said in the beginning, so activation, focus, motivation matter for memory, right? And that I do think that you can probably, well, we're already breeding for high motiv- motivated dogs. And then um, dogs that are, that are basically attentive to cues and focus. So you can probably breed for these qualities that um, the dog has the motivation or can be motivated for tasks. And then on top of it, probably um, the type of dogs that are internally rewarded, feeling internally rewarded for the activity that gets them to the rewards, whether that is Mm -hmm. hunting or biting or searching or whatnot, um, protecting. So I think indirectly can breed for it. I don't know if you can specifically breed for the memory unless you just breed for like big brains. Sure. Yeah, that's kind of true. The, and for those that have been listening and watching, uh, just so in case they don't know, when you meet, when you use the term activation, how, what is that defined as just so they know? Oh, activation in terms of just arousal, um, activation of everything, uh, in terms of motivation, well, motivation is itself, um, and activation, just arousal level. Yep. So they see the thing, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't. That's an activation aspect. Yeah. Okay. The And then I'll end this podcast with, with this question because I know there's there's got to be the answer to this. What is the smartest breed? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What is the smartest breed? I, you know, I'm actually funny that you asked this because I do think about this a lot. Like they're like, whenever you look this up, you see kind of like the same dogs in the upper, you know, obviously the Malinois, the Shepherd, the Poodle, um, the Dobie, whatnot, uh, the Retriever. And it's like, why? There are obviously some dogs where I can see just by the brain anatomy that um, like they have really narrow heads, right? The, um, certain collies, they have such narrow heads. The brain must be just so much smaller. It's like I can see why they kind of lose the ability to be the smartest dogs. Um, but what? Where does this ranking come from? Yeah. And um, again, I don't think that's actually true to say these are the smartest breeds. And I think exactly what we just talked about, it comes down to how motivated are they to do certain things. And indirectly, it makes them smarter just because they're activating their their processes faster. So mm-hmm. I think the smartest breeds you can find probably personality-wise, um, you can probably find this in almost every kind of kind of breed so my answer is no answer there is no yeah, that's <laughs> you said basically what dr hare said he goes there there intelligence isn't a glass that's half full or empty right you know and it's there's all kinds of intelligence mm-hmm. you know so it depends on what you do and i don't know if you've seen the netflix episode called animal intelligence i share that often in my yes. cognition class mm-hmm. and that's another good one where some of these measures are based on human measures it makes no sense to the animal. 
Right. And like they say in that episode, an octopus might look at us as stupid because we can't change our our outer body to match our environment or an elephant being able to use its trunk to solve a problem and we can't even do something like this. So how do we even come up with you know what's the smartest? And then even further, like Brian said, cognitive profiles actually have a better matchup than breeds. You know, the breed is nothing more than just the exterior of the dog. Right. The cognitive profiles is where you see stargazer versus the other ones mavericks and these no matter what breeds have a much better alignment than a breed does right so that was a really unique one and then while we were talking there i thought of i did think of one more question which is is it possible because a lot of detection dog handlers feel this but could it i mean and you may like i said you may not know but would could a dog have a favorite odor like they're trained to detect multiple odors could they have a favorite I think so. Um, I, I, I don't see why not. Like, just like with any sensory input, um, and this is so pronounced for dogs, right? I think absolutely. What is What does favorite mean for a dog, though, right? Like, what makes it, what about it? Is it just because it's stronger and easier to find, right? Or is it something that is associated with a different emotion that is similar to something else? But I think there's absolutely such thing as in, like, the they gravitate to something. Um, and I give you an example, uh, unrelated to this, but maybe related in a certain way. Um, whenever their learning is happening, and I talk a lot about the emotional load, endogenous opioids, right? If they're in one way or another involved in this, and that might not even be with the task itself, but if you mm-hmm. play with your dog right before you go into tracking or right before you go into your training, Playing itself does release endogenous opioids and they impact memory. Now, for example, in this kind of study, I found it very fascinating with, with rodents. Um, at the beginning, they, they took uh, little pups, right? And usually as pups for the rodents, they um, find anything new aversive because of all. Who knows if it's safe for you, right? So like stay away from anything new, just cuddle with mom kind of thing. Um, and they injected endogenous opioids and then they um, gave them orange odor, I think, right after exposed to it. Mm-hmm. And then they looked what happened. And then after that, they would gravitate to that odor, even though it's new and they shouldn't be because who knows if it's safe. So um, they really preferred the areas where this orange odor was being put they gravitated towards it like it was mom to cuddle with. Mm. Um, and it became something favorite, right? So they just not remember it, remember, mem- memorize it, but they also had some positive association with this. And I think that that applies like the um, to, to the power of what the dog does right before what the dog has done in the past and association that can create some favorism towards some, some orders. You're bringing up something that gets brought up frequently in the detection dog world, especially with those who breed um, or have puppies. So there's been two camps for a long time, which is put a puppy on odor as soon as possible because they'll be better at it. They'll remember it better, what have you. Then the other side says, let the dog grow, mature, get out of certain phases before we introduce odor just because you may inadvertently create something that becomes aversive to the dog that ends up being associated to detection or that particular odor. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the re, the what limited research there has been has kind of been some of it's been anecdotal, some of it's been you know we still have more to do. Um, you, you know, th- there was a guy uh, I've interviewed him before, Pat Nolan, and he did one where he did like raspberry tea leaves, and he would, you know, yeah, you know, have the dog kind of ex- be exposed to it, and then feed him on mom, and then what he kind of saw was, yeah, some dogs definitely remembered that later on when they introduced it when they were older and other ones there was no significant association mm-hmm. that made me think of well that is that's got to be related to that dog's cognitive ability those dogs that are higher in memory and then mm-hmm. the other ones that were not um or what other experiences there what i usually now through my experience only recommend because knowing that the average person may not be thinking far enough ahead that though it's fun to teach the dog an odor early on and you can see a puppy kind of make a connection there's more potential risk for something adverse happening because you don't know in that developmental stage where the dog is at and then all of a sudden inadvertently out of nowhere you've made a negative association to the dog to this game or to this odor or to this experience and then now you're paying a price later on Versus just saying, let the dog be a dog, let a dog grow up, don't worry about the odor. You could do search games and some skill stuff, but it's for primary uh, reward. But then once you've got that, you got to be careful not to do that too much because then they think searching is always, always about finding their favorite thing. But, you know, the experience, what, what, what advice would you give? Would it kind of match up with the other one I described? Or have you seen any research about olfaction and memory early on versus later in life kind of thing? I haven't seen any particular researchers, but probably just don't look enough for it. But if I had to side with one or the other, I would probably side with you, mainly because um, in the early phase, there is so much happening in the brain, so much so that we have no idea what's actually happening. And like you said, the risk is there. Do you really want to risk it? I think there's so much more opportunity still later on anyways. And one reason why I'm saying it, not as an example for that, but just how um, upside down sometimes things can be early on in the brain, in the development, is as soon as a, um, I think they did this study actually with monkeys, Um, but uh, we know that this applies to most mammals that, that have this initial attachment to the mom just because they need it for survival. You know, we all like believe and 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 without going too much into detail, but classical conditioning association, even operant conditioning, right? That um, there's either an appetitive behavior or an aversive um, behavior, like moving away from it or gravitating towards it. And in that study, they they see that even though the monkey mom is abusive to the baby. He would say like, well, the the baby just shouldn't go to the mom then, right? And was actually attached even more. And they were looking more in the brain like, why is that? It doesn't make any sense. It's not good for the baby. It doesn't doesn't ensure your survival. What are you doing here? And what happens is in that developmental stage, the factors that would actually help avoid harmful situations, like the kind of Uh, punishment learning and all that some of these factors are being knocked off for just a short period of time because the brain is like you need a mom no matter what Mm. whether the mom is abusive to you whether you're not like cuddled up but you need someone to feed you and that kind of obviously reverses back as the, the monkey grows up right and 
I'm pretty sure that there are many other things where associations that you think should happening might not happening because of some developmental stage, some regulatory mechanism that kick in or don't kick in. And we mm -hmm. just don't know enough about this to say for sure what you're doing is 100% going in the right direction. Yeah. Versus when you later have a more functional dog that is, you know, where you know what you're working with is probably a, be on the safer side. Yeah. And like I said, that's just been, I've done it both ways. Um, but I've just seen more risk that comes from uh, too early and not seeing what stage of development I was in with a puppy and risking a negative association to something that I want them to really enjoy, whether it be an environment, the searching skill, you know, something falls off a shelf when they're, you know, there's all kinds of things that can happen that where, like you said, once they're more developed, they're more sound, they're more robust. Um, right. When things like that happen, it's no big deal. So, and then I also tell people, what's the rush? You know, right. you're not going to have a three month old detection dog. You're not going to have a five month old detection Please dog. Don't tell so, that's yeah. not have this trend go in this direction. Exactly. So th there's, there's really no extra reward out of it. And there's been no significant difference in one that learned odor earlier versus ones that learned odor, you know, five, six months later in life. So, yeah. That's good that the, you know, like I said, it's just been different things that we get, we pass around the, 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 the our detection dog worlds as, um, sometimes things get passed around as gospel. Some things get passed around as good ideas, but we do sometimes without thinking about the bigger picture and risk or reward out of that. So yeah. with, so with that said, with all this great information, like you said, mm -hmm. you do lots of stuff when it comes to. Um, behavioral things, dog training in general. Mm -hmm. How do people find you? Where do people find you? And how do they get in touch with you? That is also a fantastic question. So I would direct everyone to my website. That's probably the easiest because it's just the name, caninedecoder.com. It's actually everything is caninedecoder.com. Even my Instagram yep. handle, my YouTube channel, um, all of this there. If if, you know, for quick entertainment, my social media accounts are probably the way to go. Um, but for those who are more interested in really learning the new science and hands-on training for behavior, not so much obedience, really it's kind of behavior, anxiety, aggression, reactivity. My programs and details are all on my website. Yep. And it's K9 spelled out, not K yes. number nine, just so people know. So K9decoded.com. And then I can tell you, she has great skills for social media, especially <laughs> on your Instagram reels and things like that. You do some great stuff that's really engaging and thought-provoking, which is, of course, what it's kind of designed to do. Go follow her on Instagram, Canine Decoded on there. And you, I mean, you're putting stuff out probably every couple of days. So mm -hmm. like little said, little thought-provoking ideas uh, to kind of get people to think about something. I've been sharing it more. So the past month or so, I see something cool that connects to me and I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm going to share that. I know Michael does frequently. Mm -hmm. If you follow Michael on Instagram in his stories, he'll just, uh, reshare some of the things that you posted out that day. So, and then those who don't know, you kind of have your show on YouTube where you've interviewed lots of different important people mm -hmm. and different backgrounds. Like you said, Michael included, other researchers from, uh, like your friend, was it Christine Hucht from uh, Harvard University? Mm -hmm. 
Yep. So just really cool stuff. So if you're if you're one of those that likes to nerd out on all kinds of dog things, especially behavior and neuroscience, mm-hmm. go check out caninedecoded.com. And then, like I said, on Instagram, everywhere else. Yes. Melanie, thank you so much for yeah. coming on the show. Me and you already have. I'll, I'll drop a little tiny teaser. <laughs> we have some special things in mind coming up that people will have fun with and we're going to be working it out even further Mm -hmm. um i won't say much more than that but they will be able to watch it and we will have some fun with this Mm -hmm. we're going to do a little bit of myth busting right yeah (laughs) so it'll be a lot of fun so yep everybody thank you for tuning in and listening to canines talking sense where it's okay to be nosy